If you will turn to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and verses 11 through 18, I'm going to read through this quickly, and then we will come back a little later on and analyze it in very fine detail. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. John saw this as a creature, and he wrote merely what he saw. He didn't tell us exactly what it meant. And he had two horns like a lamb, tiny little buttons of horns, because a little lamb, a little male lamb, uh, doesn't have very much of a horn. But he spake as a dragon, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and that first beast is revealed in verses 1 through uh, 10 and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, like a miniature or a replicated Pentecost, actual fire coming down and people witnessing it. And deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. What is an image? We will come back and deal with that a little more. Well, you know what an image is. Your image is maybe a picture or a bust, a sculpture of you. We talk about the image, meaning the exact counterpart or a replica of something that represents that which it is supposed to uh, pick, depict or stand for which had the wound by a sword, and did, leave, did live, rather. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, so right across society, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell save he had the mark. Now you've got to be able to buy. The things that we buy most often are groceries, and of course the breakfast type things. Oh, don't forget the milk and the eggs and so on when you go buy, and you buy bread, milk, and eggs very, very often, sometimes more than once a week. And if you could not buy at the market, you couldn't live, you couldn't survive. If you couldn't purchase gas, if you couldn't make your payments on your apartment or your home, if you couldn't make your car payments, if you couldn't purchase vegetables and canned goods and perishables and meats and fruits and vegetables, you couldn't live. No man might buy or sell save he had the mark. Or, not the mark exclusively, but the mark or the name of the beast. So if you had the name of the beast, presumably, and not the mark, you would be all right. But of course, I think all is Im implied here. Or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. So the number of the beast is not the number of the United States of America, or the number of Italy, or even the number of the Vatican but it's the number of a man. And his, that is the man's number, is six hundred, three score, and six. So the Bible is dealing with numbers, and it tells us that three sixes together are the number of this great image of the beast, or this man who is depicted as a great false prophet. And three in the Bible we know is finality, and six is the number of man. Seven is perfection, completion, and three is finality. If you'll turn now to Revelation 14, 9 and 10. 
The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. A fearsome fate for any who would do what? It does not say any who would be wrestled to the ground at age 80 with a big brute with his knees on your shoulders or your arms and some kind of a nurse or a doctor there with a scalpel and with the ability to stop the blood and to stitch it up and actually implant a computer chip beneath the skin of your hand or your forehead. It says if any will worship the beast and his image. Now that's voluntary. That's not involuntary. That is a matter of the mind, a matter of assessment, appraisal, investigation, a matter of reading, studying, listening, hearing, and then making a decision. You do not approach worship by being brutally thrown to the ground and having someone assault you and insert a chip beneath the skin of your forehead or your hand. That isn't worship. That is a violent, brutal act. It has nothing to do with what is going on inside your mind. As one elderly man told his son in one of the death camps in Germany, they can abuse your body, they can even kill you, but they can never take away your mind or your spirit or what you believe. And didn't Jesus say the same thing virtually? Fear not man who after he has killed the body cannot kill the suke or the spirit or the life of man which is secure in the hands of God, but fear him who can kill pneuma, soma, suke, body, soul, and spirit in Gehenna fire. So people who are scared to death, and by the way, I was looking through the internet and all I had to do was dial in Mark of the Beast. And here was just page after page and each one of those were links to other places and there were religious people in there with all kinds of ideas. It was one man that would even give you page after page of information about the deep significance of the last four numbers of his own social security card. And he was telling all who would read his website that the social security card is a part of the mark of the beast. Now on this and other sites, they will show you the newly designed hand print machine. There are vendors now who actually, instead of just giving you the thumbprint, by the way, there are thumbprint machines too now. You don't only just have your thumb impressed in ink and then stick it on a piece of paper, but now there are Lasers, apparently, are like cameras, and you simply put your thumbprint down, and instantly these huge superpower computers can match that thumbprint with the record of your prints in the FBI headquarters or somewhere and find out whether you're a crook or not. But it's also a way to purchase things. There are people now who, before they will sell you certain things, Want what? Well, the average supermarket, when you go in and you buy a sack of groceries and you make out your check, want your driver's license number. Uh, sometimes they want your social security number because that way they can track you down. Anymore, they say, what's your telephone number? Well, if I were a crook, I'd simply give them a false number, but they don't ask to see the proof that that's my telephone number. And a couple of times, because I've been angry at them, I've given them because I think it's an insult to me personally, and I think that it's obvious when you've been trading at a place for 21 years, they ought to by now know that your, your trade is good. And if they ask my telephone number, I just give them the one that was just disconnected. 
But it's it just a, a thing. It, it was my telephone number, but it doesn't work anymore. But that's kind of fun. But I did it as an experiment, so she would look up immediately. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's been disconnected. <laughs> but, of course, she wouldn't have known that. So the point is, they don't know the number at all. So you've got to pull in your, your purse or your wallet. You've got to pull them out and to show them your driver's license, right? Well, on several of these sites, people were merchandising all kinds of things and scaring people to death. Now, let's separate two issues right now. Believe it or not, there are microchips being implanted beneath the skin of animals already. You can buy one and have it implanted, and it's like a little transmitter that will keep track of your dog already. Now, if and when a government should pass a law that requires all of its citizens to carry a national identity card, that has nothing to do with worship it will not cost you the kingdom of God if you obey the powers that be and carry instead of a state driver's license, which is probably on record with the federal government anyway, and or a social security card, which is certainly a federal bureau, or any other number like I know automatically and could recite right now, but I won't, my naval number that I had when I was in the Navy, because it was printed on a dog tag and I memorized that and carried it around my neck for the better part of four years and it's still in my mind and I could just reel it off to you right this minute. But that is not threatening to me one way or the other. My driver's license is not threatening to me. My social security card is not threatening to me, especially at age 70. And a lot of you that are over age 65, it is not a threat to you to have a social security card because you might be able to get up to 350 or more a month if you have one, right? if you paid into it as you work through life. So let's separate the issues. There are probably going to come cases, certainly under dictatorships and despots, where national identity cards are required, not just a state identification, visible identification. You have to have a passport if you travel overseas, and you show it all the time. You check into a hotel somewhere, may I have your passport, please? And they keep it, and then they give it back to you a little later on. They take all the information off of it. It used to be that way everywhere. Not quite that way among United Europe anymore, but it certainly used to be when it was all uh, separate. You went through the bowl as they show, show you uh, the little uh, customs uh, kiosk at every border that you passed, and you had to show them all of your documents. So certainly you would not want to incur God's wrath by worshiping the beast and or his image or receive his mark in your forehead or in your hand. Now let's go back to Revelation 13, 11 through 18 and read this a little more slowly. We've got to first of all ask, if we want to know what is this image of the beast which is going to speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, verse 15, when you know God will kill you if you do, and the image of the beast will kill you if you don't, then what decision are you going to make? That's the proverbial rock in the hard place, isn't it? You've got to make up your mind whether you're going to stand on something which may cost you your life, or you're going to stand on something else which may forfeit your salvation and extend your human physical life for a very short period of time, a matter of months or a very few years. 
Now, to understand who and what is the beast, let's turn back to the book of Daniel, the second chapter. And without reading all of the dream, let's go right to the point where Daniel is ushered into the audience of the king, and he tells him exactly what this great dream was. Because here we begin to deal with a great image. Verse 31, Daniel 2. Thou, O king, saw, and behold, a great image. What was that image? Well, it looked like a man. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. It would have been awesome. What was the biggest statue ever made in the history of the world? It was the Colossus at Rhodes. But apparently its feet, actually one side and the other, formed the entry into a part of the channel into the harbor at Rhodes, and it was a gigantic, huge statue in human form, the Colossus at Rhodes. Now this was a great colossal image. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. You saw till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, which were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. He seemed to see a stone crash into the feet of the image. The image just gradually collapsed and became just like dust. A wind came along and just like chaff, it blew away. And no place was found for them. And the stone, which was still there in this vivid dream that he saw, gradually grew and grew and became like Haramon or maybe... Kilimanjaro, and he saw a gigantic, huge mountain that seemed to fill the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And of course, later on, Nebuchadnezzar admitted that it was God who set up and deposed kings. So king and kingdom are synonymous. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and fowls of the heaven is given into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. History tends to tell it the other way around. They tend to tell us that Babylon was the most inferior and that Persia was, the, was a little more advanced and then Greco-Macedonia more advanced and Rome the most advanced of all. But the Bible has it the other way around. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all of these, because iron is much more uh, powerful than gold or silver, which are malleable, and an iron a hammer can be used to pound them out, like into flat disks in almost any shape you want. And as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas you saw the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, the word divided is also translated broken, because you know you can't mix clay and iron. If you're going to pour molten iron into a mold and try to make something with it, like the head of a hammer, or a sledgehammer, or an anvil, but you've got clay in the mixture, it's going to be shot through with all kind of holes, just like a Swiss cheese. The iron is not going to cling together. It won't form correctly, be easily broken. 
And it says, as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but it's like trying to mix oil and water, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay, because clay is very weak and iron is very strong. But clay can be a bonding agent. Clay, as it is wet, will harden as it dries. It can be used to make pots and cups and vessels and pottery. It can also be used as a compress on a wound, and it can actually draw some of the poisons out of human skin as it dries, especially carbide clay. And the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, ten toes, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So the stone that is cut out without hands, and this is known by all the commentaries, it's known by Halley's Bible Handbook, it's known by so many other Bible helps and Bullinger's and some of the other Bible study Bibles, that the stone is symbolic of Christ. Christ is the rock. It smites the image not on the head or the breast or the belly and thighs, but on the toes, and there are ten of them. It supersedes them and becomes a great mountain, meaning a kingdom, the mountain or the kingdom of God, which is to be set up and never be destroyed. In the days of these kings, the days of the ten toes, because that's where the stone lands and demolishes them, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So here's a prophecy clear back in the book of Daniel in the second chapter that begins with ancient Babylon before 539 B.C. and goes all the way up to the time yet ahead of us of the second coming of Christ. A prophecy that transcends all of the time of world history from ancient Babylon down through Persia and Greco-Macedonia and Rome with its many revivals all the way to the time of the second coming of Christ. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And that's what he says in Revelation 2, 26, to him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they should be broken to shivers. So some nations are going to have to be broken to shivers under the power of God. And it shall stand forever. Now, in Daniel, the third chapter, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image. Obviously, the dream had to have inspired the thought. Thou, O king, art this head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar thought, I will make a great statue of myself. A lot of kings and emperors and rulers are afflicted with narcissism. A lot of dictators are. They just adore themselves. And they call things after their name. And they name things after them, all kinds of things. And then they sometimes are given to make gargantuan statues of themselves. So he made a great statue. I take it this is not a statue of a bird or an animal, but the statue of a man. And while it doesn't specifically state so, I think that the inference here from the preceding chapter of the vision that he saw, interpreted by Daniel, and then what happened here as this was set up and the example of Daniel and the, as they're called, three holy children, they're Jewish names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, but their Babylonian names are better known, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happened to them? There's some interesting types at work here. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits, or three score cubits. 
That is about 90 feet high, or about the height of a nine or 10 story building. That's one big statue. And it was made, apparently, whether or not it was stone and then had gold leaf all over it that was hammered on it, whether it was solid gold, it kind of boggled your mind, you'd think, is there that much gold in the world? But it was apparently of gold, a golden statue. And the breadth thereof, six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Well, he gathered all the counselors and everybody and said that when it was dedicated, that everybody is commanded, verse 4, when they heard the sound of the cornet, flute, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar king had set up. So here is the image of what? The image of the first beast. Nebuchadnezzar was the first beast of the four beasts. We will come to that of Daniel, the seventh chapter. The first beast of Revelation, the 13th chapter, embodies all the four strongest parts of the four beasts of Daniel 7. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of gold, the head of gold, but he was also the first of the great beast powers. There were four in succession, Babylon, Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and Rome. So what you have here is the image of the beast. In ancient parlance, ancient language, you have an image of the beast because Nebuchadnezzar was a beast and he made an image of himself, and I have no doubt it was the image of a man. Whoso falls not down and worships the same, and they're to do it right when they hear the music. So probably that would have happened on a particular moment of the day. Like when you hear the music, well, they would have probably been out in different bands around where they could have heard it, maybe megaphones, who knows. And that was when everybody in the nation was to do like Islam, Islamic adherents do today, five times a day, and they bow toward Mecca. I've told you before about the stretch 747 that King Khalid of Saudi Arabia had commissioned, and they had an actual big plastic bubble in the huge salon in the uh, aircraft, so that, well, it didn't matter which direction it turned, the thing was keyed so that always on this GPS uh, global positioning system, there was an arrow in the bubble that would point toward Mecca. So when the people in this airplane, didn't matter which direction they were going or whether in a bank, they could look up there and they could always bow toward Mecca. And five times a day they had to bow toward Mecca. Well, these people were supposed to bow toward this statue. Well, verse 8, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. So right away he lived forever. And I'm kidding, of course, but... And thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, I won't repeat all of that, but it goes and repeats it every single time, shall fall down to worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now what does Satan the devil say is the fate of every person uh, Satan the devil, meaning the one who originated the idea of an ever-burning hell, that he should be tormented by fire, Satan the devil says people are going to go to hell. Of course, God the Father says that Gehenna fire is the ultimate reward of unrepented sin, not being tormented forever and ever, but being burnt up, as it says in the last chapter of the book of Malachi. Well, there are certain Jews, and there were three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These, O king, verse 12, have not regarded thee. They serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. 
Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury. Interesting. He wouldn't be that outraged and that furious if it had been the statue of a bird or a cow, you think? But since it was a direct personal effrontery to him in his great grandeur and splendor and his vanity and his narcissism, he was in a rage. Bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of all these instruments, I won't repeat it again, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well, but if you worship not, you're going to be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is it that God shall deliver you out of my hands? Well, they said, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't have to take a lot of time to think about it. If it be so, notice the language, it didn't matter, their minds were made up. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able they weren't saying he's going to. They didn't know that it was his perfect will. But he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, whichever way this goes, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Their minds were made up. They knew the true God. They knew that to bow down to an idol would incur the wrath of God and would gain for them Gehenna fire, which would destroy them forever, body, soul, and spirit. But they knew the king could only destroy the body, didn't they? They were making the very choice that Jesus Christ sets before you and me. Fear not man who after he has destroyed the body, even if he does it by fire, cannot destroy the new creature in Christ, the spirit that is commonly called the soul. He cannot destroy the life that is in the hands of God. So they made that decision. Nebuchadnezzar, full of fury and the form of his visage, was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. So they just started shoveling in the coal, and they had bitumen and coal then, but probably bitumen. It would be like a, a Bessemer oven, and they were just getting this thing furiously hot. He commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Well, they bound them up in their garments, their mantles, and their turbans, as it says in the margin, and their, their hats and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace was hot, they probably opened some kind of a big iron grate and the draft caused the fire to come out and just burnt to a crisp and killed right then and there the very men that took them up to throw them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound. You heard this when you were a child in Bible study, probably, or Bible school, or if you went to Sunday school, you probably heard it read by the teacher at that time. Daniel and the lion's den, and three children, the three holy children, so-called, in the fiery furnace. We've all heard it in the time of our youth. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said, Yes, O king, it's true. Well, lo, I see four men loose. 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt in the form of the fourth, is like the Son of God. Do you suppose that is who it might have been? It just might have been. David prayed, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Well, isn't it interesting that maybe it was not just an archangel this time, but maybe it was the very Son of God. They had made their commitment, and he, or some great angelic spirit being, representing him, and Nebuchadnezzar thought it was the Son of God, was right there in that fire, overcoming the fire, absolutely caused no harm. He just changed the fact that fire destroys, consumes, uh, eats and feeds upon that which it consumes, that it is combustion, and it causes terrible blisters and a loss of your hair and immediate death in the most agonizing way you can imagine. He just changed all of that, just like he could change viscous or liquid water to solid by walking on it, because he has the control of the elements and because he is all-powerful. So here was a picture of the three holy children representing certainly God's church and God's people, right in the fiery trial, the most horrible fiery trial that could be imposed upon them, martyrdom by being burnt alive, and Christ is right there with them. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. So they came out of the midst of the fire. Then the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power. What a witness. They all saw it. They experienced it. There was not an hair of their head sins, neither were their coats changed, didn't even singe their garments, nor the smell of fire passed upon them. Didn't even smell like they'd been around any smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, messenger in the Hebrew, and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word. That was probably the most impressive thing of all to him, because some of them are extremely arrogant. And yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, quick to reclaim the upper hand, wasn't he? That every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there's no other God that can deliver after this sort. And so, of course, the three of them were promoted. Don't you think that that is interesting? When you think of the prophecies in the New Testament, that we always tend to look only for the metaphor. We only look at the type. We only look at the shadow. We never look at the actuality. But this that they saw in the plain of Babylon was not metaphor. This was an actual image. The image of a man, the image of a man who we know is the first of the four beasts. Therefore it was, anciently, long since been destroyed and gone who knows where, the image of the beast of that time. Now back in Revelation 13, 11 to 18. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. So it looks lamb-like or Christ-like. We know that Christ is the Lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist said when he came to the baptism, Behold the Lamb of God. And we see in Revelation a lamb, as it were, slain from the foundation of the earth. Everyone knows that Christ is depicted by a lamb, as he was by the lamb sacrificed at the Passover. 
but he spake as a dragon. So it is a pseudo-Christ, masquerading as Christ-like, but actually satanic. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. So he exercises the power of the state. The power of the beast is the power of a political and a military organization. And causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Who was it who crowned the emperors and the kings of the Holy Roman Empire? The popes of Rome always crowned the kings of the Holy Roman Empire. State worship reached its zenith probably at the time of Adolf Hitler, although it was a weak revival of what had obtained way back during the days of the Caesars of Rome, because many of them actually claimed to be God in the flesh. And they were addressed by their cohorts as divinity, and people were actually to bow down and to, to worship them as if they were a living God. And many of them actually claimed that kind of a title. Many rulers in the past have claimed very titles of God. And so, during the days of the Holy Roman Empire, which in all cases and all times, not every case, I shouldn't say, but in most, was a Germanic kingdom, and you come all the way down to Otto the Great and the Habsburgs in the time of Adolf Hitler, and unless you've seen some of the motion pictures, and there are hundreds of them, I'm sure, that have been out there by now in all of these years since World War II, of the adulation of the look of absolute adoration, even fainting women and screaming crowds, the huge rally at Nuremberg and the great huge eagle and the swastika atop that gigantic pavilion and the huge torchlight parades of hundreds of thousands and people adoring Adolf Hitler, then you can see that there was the sublimation, in a sense, of all of the aspirations of human beings into one uh, huge, big, homogeneous, state-directed mass where every one of them could realize the aspirations, desires, and the feeling of conquering, and the feeling of success, and of overcoming, and of greatness, and of the super race through Adolf Hitler. You see people going virtually insane at a sports occasion. And they will stand up, they will shake their fists, they will scream at the top of their lungs because a group of mercenaries who have been bought for millions or hundreds of thousands are dunking a basketball through a, an iron ring with some string on it. And they will go out into the streets afterward and turn over cars and set them afire and leap upon and beat half to death somebody who didn't like their team, won't they? It is a really weird quirk of human nature that people will vent all these desires for their own power, their own success, and to overcome and to do great things by vicariously enjoying it as it is acted out by a government or an army or a basketball team or an Olympics uh, hockey team or something, and they just thrill to it. And there's nothing more thrilling than a fantastic victory parade. I understand it was a parade in New York the other day. I better not talk too much about that, but I guess there were both cheers and jeers, uh, depending upon who it was that was walking by. So, he exercises the power of the first beast before him and causes them, a dweller in, to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. I think there are a couple of fascinating things to mention. We know, first of all, in the metaphor, that Rome fell in 476 A.D. And that later on, after various governments had come in there, hang on. Little microphone dropped. 
I'll repeat that because this little mic dropped, so I want to make sure that we get that on the tape. We know that Rome fell in 476 A.D., and that for a period of time there were other governments, such as the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, the Heruli, and so on, that came in and ruled over Rome, but eventually the Roman Empire was restored. General Belisarius did so in 554 A.D. So the beast, which was the final of the four beasts with its successive revivals, had a deadly wound which was healed. I find it also interesting, and some people have picked up on this, not just me, but many others who, who understand these things, and there are any number of people uh, on television, some of the more fundamentalist church organizations whose literature and writings and preachments you will find are very well aware of who were the four successive world ruling empires and who were the beasts of the past. But many of them go awry when they think that the time of the so-called Christianization of the Holy Roman Empire was the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, and that was the time when the old Roman civil government was put down and popes began to reign, and then Constantine became a convert that this was like the kingdom of God established on the earth, and it was the kingdom of God from that time on. Well, that's absolutely not true, but some people believe that. So, look at Revelation 13 and verse 12. They will worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did, li did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, if you didn't know that you were supposed to be thinking about metaphor here, what would you think if you just read this for the very first time and you didn't know anything else about history, about the fact that the Vatican is a pattern of the old Roman civil government? and that gradually, as metropolitans replaced bishops in large cities, and as metropolitans were eventually then superseded by five great patriarchs, and as finally, through attrition and warfare, there was only one great patriarch remaining in Rome who became the pope over all of the Roman Catholic Church with his collegia of cardinals, who are now being tutored for succession. I've been reading some articles about that. There's a very long list of all the cardinals, but not all of them are electors, but a number of them are. And I mentioned the possibility of a black pope or a German pope or popes from different nations. It may be that he will be an Italian this time. I have no idea. But isn't it interesting, at least, that the present pope was also the recipient of a deadly wound which was healed, that there was an attempt to murder him, that he was shot and he recovered from it. The Pope will be in Jerusalem, I understand, day after tomorrow. They are ready in the tightest security that probably has ever been seen with the entirety, I imagine, of the IDF on guard for any kind of an assault upon the Pope. He's going to go to places like Nazareth. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to visit the so-called holy places. At Nazareth, in a square right opposite, one of the churches where there is a grotto, you know, the Roman Catholic Church always claims that everything took place in a grotto. And the grotto in Nazareth is supposed to be the very place, it's down in a dank, dark grotto, hole in the ground, where the archangel made the annunciation to Mary that she was going to be with child of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, there is a church built on that site. And right across from it in a public square is the land that the present Israeli government has decided to allow the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians to build a mosque. And right now it is being occupied. People are sleeping there. They go inside a mausoleum. There is an Arab mausoleum on the property. And when it rains, they go inside the mausoleum. But the rest of the time, they sleep out in the open. And they are there occupying it because they're afraid that maybe someone will try to chase them away and they won't get to build their mosque. And they want to build a mosque almost next to, right next, adjacent to, this Roman Catholic church that is there in Nazareth. The Pope is going to go there. One might wonder, one might speculate about the dangers of this most traveled of all of the Roman Catholic popes in the history of the world. He has been overseas about a hundred times, had about a hundred trips. I don't know how many there are actually, but a tremendous number. He is the most revered single human being on the earth in terms of the numbers who know him. There are far more people, men, women, and children who know the Pope than know President Clinton or any other leader of any other state, as far as that's concerned, because he is known virtually universally. And when you crank in all of the professing Christians from the tip of Tierra del Fuego to the tip of Alaska and all of the other countries like Spain and Italy and France and so many of them that are up to 98, 99, 100% Roman Catholic, then what I'm saying is true. He is called holy and then they put the word father with it. I don't even like to say the two words together because Christ says call no man father and I don't think any man is holy. But in any event, he has those titles. I am making no predictions here, but I am wondering what is going to result from this trip to Israel. Will it merely be more controversy because it is very highly political in spite of the fact that the Vatican says it is not political? What is the greatest need in the Middle East right now? Peace. Solve the problems between Jews and Arabs. Quit the squabbling between the three great monotheistic religions over holy places. Who masquerades as the Prince of Peace? Who actually claims to be the direct representative, the vicar of Christ? Why, the Pope in Rome does. Who was the man who was more instrumental than anyone else in prying loose the communist grip from Poland? The present Pope. And therefore, the person who was instrumental in causing the creation of a united Europe. The present Pope. Will he with the statements that he is going to make atop the statements that he made only about a week ago in which he asked for forgiveness for literally centuries of murder, of the Inquisition, of every kind of form of brutality. The man even issued an apology for the Crusades. I won't apologize for the Crusades because they were 800 years before I had a chance to participate. So how in the world should I apologize for the Crusades when I didn't have a chance to take part? If it hadn't been for the Crusades, everybody in France and all over, probably even the British Isles, would be speaking Arabic and would be bowing five times a day to Mecca. Because that is exactly what Turkey and the Islamic countries were doing when they advanced all the way to the gates of Vienna. And if it had not been for the Crusades, which mounted armed armies to go over there, and mercenaries to go over there and fight some of those Turks and others 
to keep them from swarming over all of Europe when they'd actually swarmed over the entirety of the Middle East and had a gigantic empire, converts by the edge of the sword. Not converts through reason or teaching, but converts as a result of the threat of the scimitar. Uh, if somebody wants to apologize for the Crusades, they can. Is, is an American president now required to get on his knees and beg forgiveness of all the Indians? Should I beg forgiveness for the fact that George Washington was a slave owner? You get to thinking about this and you wonder, what really is going on here? Is it merely cosmetics? Because there have been many great ecumenical meetings. I mean the heads of all the great religions, including non-Christian religions, including Hindus and the leaders of Islam like the Grand Mufti, and including some of the breakaway groups that are closer to the Roman Catholic Church than any Baptist or Methodist would ever say. That includes Episcopalians and Lutherans. And the heads of those churches, including the head of the Archbishop of Canterbury, has been there in Rome and has gone into these big ecumenical meetings sponsored by the Vatican within the last couple of years. Ecumenism is in the air. The olive branch is being held out by the papacy to the fold to come back to the one so-called universal holy church. And the Pope is making very significant trips. There could be no more significant sight on the face of the earth than where the Pope at Rome is going to be starting Monday. There could be no more significant individual to be in that significant place come Monday, so far as the world consciousness is concerned. So we will wait and see what will be the fallout and what will happen. Now coming back to what I said, if you just read this fresh, and you didn't think immediately, oh, I know what this means. The image of the beast is the ecclesiastical counterpart of the old Roman civil government. It's an ecclesiastical government that appears to be Christ-like, but speaks as of Satan the devil. But if you didn't know any of that, or didn't even think any of that, or had never heard any of that, but you read this fresh for the first time, they ought to make an image to the beast that the image of the beast should speak. You would think, oh, well then at some time they're going to make some gigantic image. And the image is going to be the image of something called a beast. Well, if you find out that there is to be a beast and that he will be like an end time Nebuchadnezzar or Hitler or uh, Nero or any other of the great despotic leaders of all time, he will be a super dictator over 10 nations in Central Europe could it be possible that he will be so revered and because he will send his armies into the Middle East according to Daniel 11 verses 40 to 45, this time probably not in an attack to kill Jews, but this time in an attack against the invading armies who are trying to exterminate the Jews as the savior of the Jews to occupy the country that's in the air today, peacekeeping coalitions of governments, multinational forces, quick response forces from no, multinational uh, sources are going to places like Kosovo and they're talking now about Montenegro and whether they have to go into there or not. And NATO interfering to keep these uh, people from each other in the Balkans. So what if the coalition of a united European force goes into Palestine and occupies Jerusalem. Remember the two main prophecies Christ said we're to watch for are, first of all, Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And secondly, in 
the 21st chapter of Luke and verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies. The armies will be there to protect the ecclesiastical leader who is there, who is called a great false prophet. But the beast at the helm of those armies will be the one who will be heralded or will be proclaimed and be adored and worshiped as a man who brought peace. The great generals who have enjoyed the, the ticker tape parades down uh, Fifth Avenue and in New York at the close of World War II, like Eisenhower or some of the others who have been there, Mark Clark or Patton or some of the other great generals and conquerors like MacArthur when he came home, have all been given adulation and great respect. Eisenhower was elected as president and probably if MacArthur had come back to the country earlier and had not been the governor of uh, Japan for so many years as he was, about 12 years, he was a serious contender, and Truman knew that, which is why he yanked him out of the job that he had given him in Korea, because an awful lot of people would have really wanted MacArthur to run for president of the United States. Will there be, at some point in time, another image actually erected or constructed, and will it be in Jerusalem? Could that be? Is it literal as well as metaphorical? Is it literal as well as typical? Now, what great church is it that, better put this back on again. Don't know how much of that this is missed. Sorry, this little microphone keeps falling off. What great church is it that reveres statuary, that believes in bleeding statues and statues that weep, that have real tears coming down from them, or blood that oozes out of the body of the actual stone that is marble or metal or whatever. Well, the Roman Catholic Church may have many such. They have places where uh, the Virgin weeps at a certain given time. I don't know when that's, if they turn the heat on when the air conditioning has been on before that or not. I have no idea. All I know is that people have never been to one of those sites, so I cannot comment. Maybe I ought to go and try to find out, does it really happen? But it says here that he will cause that the image should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, I know that robotics are really progressing rapidly. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, but some of those figures look absolutely realistic. They say today if your children go to like Disney World and they go through some of these rides that there is King Kong and there are alligators and there are creatures and animals and that they are so real even though they're made out of rubber and synthetics and they move and they speak. Someone had told me that apparently some of the religions, I think they said that this is being done by some Buddhists in temples to really wow the people who come in there, that the Buddha moves and speaks, sort of like the Wizard of Oz. But of course that's robotics and probably tape-recorded messages, and the people are dutifully impressed and mesmerized. But you know, there is a devil, and there are demonic beings. And it would be quite possible for Satan the devil to cause an inanimate object to sound or to speak. So it makes me wonder, do you think that there is a dual meaning to this? And that eventually, with all else that is going to go on in Jerusalem, the advance of a huge army to bring a stop to what will really be a part of World War III and to preserve the remainder of the Jews alive, and to preserve the presence of a great so-called Prince of Peace who will become ensconced in the temple of God, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, showing that he is God and having the power to call down fire from heaven, will there also at the same time be a national symbol 
for this great multinational power. I will guarantee you there will be a symbol. It will have a flag. There will be something akin to a swastika. Maybe this time it will even be a cross. I don't know what it will be. But there will be a sign. There will be a number. There will be a name. And there will be a mark. And there will be the imposition of those upon people. And they will have to make a choice just as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They'd better have their minds made up well in advance to know the rewards of the one and the rewards of the other. And they decide, I would never submit to that. Now, I'm not talking about the implantation of a chip against your will. I'm giving you some pretty strong stuff here, aren't I? Do you mean to tell me, you might say, Garner Ted, that you're saying that if some dirty brute came in here and deliberately held me down and tried to implant a chip beneath my skin, that I should stand still for it? Pray tell, what are you going to do if you're a widow lady age 80? What if they do it forcibly? I'm saying resist it, fight it, don't ever voluntarily accept it unless it becomes the law of the land. But even then, I doubt that they could ever go that far. I doubt that an implantation process is ever going to happen in our lifetimes or between, between the time of the tribulation and the coming day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ. I happen. A lot of people are afraid of it. They become very, very paranoid. But you need not fear, because even if that were to be done to you against your will, it will not cost you your salvation. The three holy children were not thrown into that fiery furnace voluntarily. They didn't jump in there. They were bound up, tied, and thrown in there. And there was Christ right with them, and they walked right through it, and they had no harm. No one can take away your salvation by any kind of strong-arm tactics of either stamping or tattooing or implanting something upon your flesh that causes you to lose salvation itself. And you need to understand that and be reassured that that is so. Let's turn to Luke, the 21st chapter, to conclude here. Jesus Christ gave a whole series of prophecies that are both in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 about the great tribulation. Verse 9, you will hear of wars and commotions. Be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. He said, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. How many wars are there seemingly about ready to begin right now? China could attack Taiwan almost at any day. They are threatening on a daily basis. And very quickly now, Taiwan is scheduled to have some more elections. And if Taiwan were to dare to declare themselves sovereign and completely independent, I have no doubt that China would attack. In 1996, China had a live firing missile exercise with their missile frigates and cruisers right at both ends of the Strait of Taiwan between Taiwan and the Pescadores and the mainland of China. The United States had one aircraft carrier, battle group, that is stationed at Sasebo, Japan, that steamed immediately over offshore the eastern coast of Taiwan. Our president said, and just the other day our vice president said, oh, we sent two battle carrier groups there, and they steamed right through the Straits of Taiwan, and the Chinese backed down. That is a point-blank lie. Never happened. 
In the first place, the second carrier group was over in the Persian Gulf, and they only got as far as the Straits of Malacca, and the Navy would never reveal whether they sailed another one foot beyond the Straits of Malacca, just south of Singapore. There is no evidence whatsoever they got anywhere near Taiwan. None of our battle carrier groups were either at the north or the south entry to the Straits of Taiwan, but only one of them was many miles away, and the Navy itself said they did not interfere with the Chinese area of the war games that they were playing. And what Al Gore says, I mean, you can just almost say every time the man utters something, it is a point-blank, bald-faced misstatement of some kind. Uh, but it didn't happen. But he said that very recently in one of the interviews that we steamed right through the Taiwan Straits. Naval records prove that that's absolutely false. It never happened. But the government has made many statements that will indicate to the Communist Chinese that we really value trade with them and what is called by the Clinton administration engagement with China more than we value the island of Taiwan or the former Formosa. So the Chinese have been emboldened. Now, formerly they said that if they ever declare independence, we will attack. And along with that, they have reminded the United States that if you butt in, we will attack you as well. We are a nuclear power. We're capable of taking out your aircraft carriers, and we're capable of taking out many of your major cities. But now the Chinese have gotten a little harsher. Just the other day, they decided to tell the Taiwanese, now no longer do we say we will attack if you declare independence. Now we will attack if you do not come to the meeting that we are proposing to set up talking about being joined back with the mainland. So there are rumors of wars, aren't there? Wars and rumors of wars. North and South Korea. The potential of war between India and Pakistan. The potential, again, of renewed violence in Northern Ireland. Always the potential of war in the Middle East. These are exactly the times Christ described. The time of great earthquakes in diverse places. Famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall they be from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you. So before all of those happen, before the superposition of one of these great events atop another, before all of these, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues, into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. I'll tell you, when they prevent you from speaking the truth of God, or actually kick you off television stations for daring to expound the first chapter of Romans, the time is growing close when the powers that be may actually cause that those who will preach God's truth fearlessly and not compromise with the word of God will simply not be allowed on the public media. You see, the leftist liberal media in the United States has already made up its mind. It is way out in the van, wants homosexuals to dominate everything, wants same-sex marriages, wants everything to be a village, it wants a pool, it's almost a, a communist, socialist, new world, one global village idea that they have. Everything extremely liberal, destruction of the family, destruction of the home, no belief in God, evolution is the only religion that they acknowledge. And they are, every single time they're on the air, they're saying, come, follow me, follow my line of reasoning, come along with us leftist liberal people in the media. And I have no doubt that the media will someday see to it that people like me are no longer and there aren't just, it's not just me, there are a lot of other people that say a lot of very conservative things biblically 
and very fundamentalist things about the Word of God and Jesus Christ and the Kingdom of God. I'm not the only one saying some of those things. I may be the only one who was also a Sabbath keeper and a feast keeper and on and on, but uh, there are others that are saying things along that line. Now, notice finally in verse 28, Jesus said, and when these things, that's all the things that he talked about, begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. He doesn't say we're to go in fear and to hide out and to really worry and wonder what's going to happen next. But when these things begin to happen, it's time for God's people to look up and lift up their heads because they know that their redemption draweth nigh. I have no idea what great events are going to take place in the next one week or one month. I know that that visit to Jerusalem is going to be highly symbolic. It's going to be a call for ecumenism for all the world's religions to quit fighting and to come together. It's going to be a call for peace in the Middle East. So who is the man who is right now appearing as the Prince of Peace and is doing more, so far as many people are concerned, than any other government, upstaging the Clinton administration that has tried to preside over getting Jew and Arab together? It is the Pope at Rome. I know my history. I know what happened in the past. I know my prophecy. I know what's going to happen in the future. And I say that we're living in very troublous times and we may have seen nothing yet. I think I know what the image of the beast is, both in metaphor and what it might eventually become literally. Because there was one in the past, you know. And the order went out, if you will not bow down to it and worship it, you're going to be killed. It makes you wonder if such an image will not be set up and if the thing at some point will actually talk. Now, wouldn't that be something? 